0: Hello and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. I'm Jessica Bylander. Today I'm talking to Jason Pryor, a former senior medical officer at the Mid-Central District Health Board in New Zealand. After practicing in New Zealand for three years, Pryor relocated to the United States in April of this year. In this month's Narrative Matters essay, Pryor writes about seeking respite from the injustice of U.S. healthcare delivery by practicing medicine abroad. Pryor began his medical career in the U.S., but soon became disillusioned as patient care became a battle between the health system's revenue concerns and patients' individual interests, and the revenue concerns often won out. After moving to New Zealand for a new perspective, he found that despite all patients being covered by a national health care system, and thus free from the headaches of the U.S. health insurance system, there were still cracks in that system, too. For instance, wait times for care were considerable, and he treated many patients with conditions that could have been prevented with earlier intervention. Jason, thank you for joining us today. Your essay stood out to me because when people are lamenting the U.S. healthcare system, it's almost of taken his gospel that practicing medicine in a country with universal health insurance would be better. So were you surprised when it didn't meet those expectations? Yeah, and
1: thank you for having me, Jessica. I, I was surprised. When I went to New Zealand, I thought, in part, being a national healthcare system covering everyone where there's no out-of-pocket expenses, no expenses for prescriptions and all the things that people typically struggle with in the United States, that it would be far better in New Zealand, and people would be happier, including the providers themselves. However, with the structure of the system and the way it was, in order to provide that universal coverage, there were a lot of other trade-offs that the New Zealand system had to make in order to to ensure everyone had access. And that included longer wait times, difficulty accessing specialist care, um, limitations on what types of prescriptions people could could receive, particularly for more expensive medications like chemotherapy. And what I found is that led to a lot of the limitations in optimal care from the provider perspective on what you would want to do for somebody, and more importantly, what you really knew they should get, and it was difficult to get them the care that they really needed in, in a lot of instances.
0: Yeah, definitely trade-offs is a, is a good word for kind of the takeaway I had from this essay that, um, you know, there are certainly flaws in the U.S. healthcare system, but there are trade-offs um, here. You know, you might get access to the best specialists, but at a high price tag. Um, so so you talk about a way forward for health systems. I know it's a it's a challenging issue to address, um, but some of the things you mentioned are alternate payment models, and then particularly addressing physician distress. Um, We often hear about burnout, and I think distress is an interesting kind of um, nuance of that. So why is it so important to tackle provider distress specifically? Well, as
1: I highlight in, in the article itself, there are a lot of physicians from the United States, from the United Kingdom. Who moved to New Zealand for the very same reasons that I did, just frustrations with the systems back home. And I hear it from friends who are still practicing medicine in the United States, from nurses, all of the challenges that they continue to to experience. And if we don't grapple with the increasing burnout, moral injury, distress, however we we define it, across the healthcare system, you'll have more and more providers and nurses deciding to do something else because it is a day-to-day battle sometimes to, to get through. And you want to do what's best for people and you have real consistent struggles doing that. And it wears on you over time.
0: Yeah. And I feel like the COVID-19 pandemic is really highlighting that. You know, if providers and along the spectrum from nurses to um, every type of care provider are so burnt out and leave the system, you know, what are we left with? So a lot of food for thought in your piece. And thanks again for joining us. And now here is Jason Pryor reading his essay, Halfway Around the World, Echoes of Physician Moral Injury.
1: Powerless. That's how I felt as waves of patients descended on the Washington, D.C. hospital where I worked. They came with entirely preventable conditions, yet the tools I needed to address their problems remained frustratingly out of reach. So I left. Frustrated, distraught, and desperate for a change, I moved to New Zealand in 2019. I couldn't tolerate practicing medicine in the U.S. any longer. I needed out, and New Zealand offered a new beginning, or so I thought. After my residency in the U.S., I began practicing hospital medicine. The field allowed me to see a wide range of patients, piece together complex symptoms into coherent diagnoses, and help people get back on their feet after an acute illness. I did this work as a hospitalist at a large academic center for nearly a decade. However, over time, patient care became a daily battle between the large system's revenue considerations and the patient's individual interests, and too often the revenue considerations won out. One morning at work, I met a middle-aged man with acute liver failure who needed an, an urgent liver transplant evaluation, which had to be conducted at one of two regional transplant facilities. Both facilities accepted that a transfer was warranted based on medical need, but neither had any beds available. Even worse, the patient's insurer didn't have a contract with either facility. As a consequence, even if a bed became available, the hospital administrators at those facilities wouldn't allow his transfer to proceed until they had negotiated a financial arrangement. Seething, I spent days on the telephone with his insurer and one of the other facilities outlining the patient's deteriorating condition. When he wound up in the intensive care unit at my hospital without a resolution, I feared that I'd watch him die while administrators argued over reimbursement. Only after I threatened to involve the healthcare ombudsman for Washington, D.C., did one of the facilities finally allow his transfer to proceed. To simply get my patient's basic care covered, I spent large portions of my days haggling over insurance denials and prior authorizations. At the same time, supervisors and hospital administrators applied constant pressure for me to discharge my patients earlier to decrease length the stay metrics. I also received daily reminders from hospital staff to write the correct phrases in my notes to Bill Moore. All of this meant that I spent fewer hours doing what I originally set out to do, help others. It wore me down. Despite the daily struggles, there were still rewarding moments. A young woman with four years of persistent abdominal pain presented to the hospital. Over the course of those four years, she'd undergone numerous tests and even had her gallbladder removed in search of the cause interpreting a new computed tomography scan. One surgeon thought a small abdominal hernia might be the issue and offered her another operation. Unconvinced, I sat with her as she moaned uncomfortably. I asked her to tell me about her life before the pain. Immediately, she began crying. Her first pregnancy had ended in a miscarriage, and she admitted that she had never recovered. Soon after her loss, her pain began. My simply taking the time to talk to her made it clear that what she needed was support and counseling for her depression and grief, not more tests or surgery. Even rewarding encounters such as these often meant essentially saving someone from a system more focused on testing, procedures, and revenue generation than on the behavioral health or social support that people truly needed. Gradually, I changed. Lashing out at colleagues, friends, and family became routine, and I couldn't understand why, A mixture of anxiety and anger consumed me. I grew more distant, and those around me trod carefully, hoping not to set me off. Each night, I only wanted to forget my days and move on, but I never could. Having strength in handling adversity and overcoming challenges is fundamental to how I see myself and my core identity. Yet no amount of resiliency allowed me to overcome the shame and guilt I felt. Yes, I could treat someone's uncontrolled diabetes, stroke, heart attack, or numerous other conditions. But what could I offer those without food, housing, jobs, insurance, or the money to afford their medications? What about those dealing with behavioral health problems, substance use disorders, or both? Where were they to turn? Nothing I did ever felt like enough. Emotionally exhausted and realizing that I couldn't remain on my path to complete isolation, I sought out help. Therapy made a difference. I better understood the etiology of my powerlessness, shame, guilt, and anxiety. For the first time in years, I started looking forward and charted a path out. Motivated to improve healthcare delivery, I enrolled in a master's program in healthcare policy. Then, one day, my best friend, who doubles as my wife and had endured the brunt of my struggles, asked me a simple question. What would you do if you weren't afraid? Without hesitation, I said, move to New Zealand. We'd spent three weeks in New Zealand years earlier during our honeymoon and had dreamed of returning. Several months later, our adventure began. Along with my wife and two young daughters, I relocated in 2019 to a small city of 80,000 people on New Zealand's North Island. Adjusting to life and practice patterns in New Zealand took time, but the number of American physicians already there made my transition earlier. In my new hospital's emergency department, 70% of the attendings came from the U.S. In hospital medicine, it was 60%. The head of radiology came from the U.S., as did the infectious disease physician, along with surgeons, anesthesiologists, cardiologists, and nephrologists. And after COVID-19 hit, exacerbating the strain on an already troubled U.S. workforce, the interest among American clinicians in coming to New Zealand only intensified. Remarkably, we came from all over the U.S., but we shared similar stories that led us to uproot our lives and move halfway around the world. Collectively, we left in search of a place to practice medicine the way we intended. And in the Pacific Ocean, on an island of 5 million people, I thought that's what I'd found. My patients were all covered by the national healthcare system, and they didn't have any out-of-pocket obligations for hospital care. I did rounds with my team, but I didn't have to write notes. Documenting clinical findings and the medical plan were important for patient care, but because I didn't bill, there wasn't a requirement that I co-sign trainee notes. I also didn't have any coding queries to answer, prior authorizations to complete, or insurance forms to fill out. I had all the time I wanted to focus solely on patient care. Since I had seen how insurance coverage frequently dictated treatment options in the U.S., the difference in New Zealand was stark. For example, in the U.S., Medicaid patients with newly diagnosed cancer were frequently referred to other facilities that actually accepted Medicaid for outpatient chemotherapy, an additional step that potentially delayed my patient's treatment and made me question whether they were receiving optimal care. Care in New Zealand was different. Shortly after arrival, I diagnosed a middle-aged man with lung cancer. He was a low-skilled laborer, and he probably would have had Medicaid or another insurance that severely restricted his care options if we had been back in the U.S. In New Zealand, his care was the same as anyone else's coming to the hospital. Immediately after his biopsy, he had another appointment to discuss the diagnosis and his treatment options. He had no out-of-pocket expenses. He wasn't directed to another facility or offered different treatment options based on his insurance coverage. He just received care. Yet, as I settled into my new role, I learned from colleagues that many around me struggled with the emotional exhaustion, cynicism, and lack of personal accomplishment that are associated with physician burnout, the same symptoms that drove my own move to New Zealand. I couldn't reconcile how New Zealand physicians reported these symptoms at the same rate as providers in the US. I had so much more time in New Zealand to spend with patients, and I spent no time dealing with billing, coding, insurance denials, electronic health record notes, or the constant threat of malpractice. However, over time, I recognized the cracks in the New Zealand healthcare system that limited providers' ability to deliver optimal patient care. In short, I witnessed a familiar phenomenon. It is commonly referred to as physician moral injury, the harm experienced by providers placed in circumstances that conflict with their values or sense of morality. Such injuries can occur, for example, when outside forces prevent a physician from putting the needs of patients first and it was driving the symptoms of burnout I saw in New Zealand, just as it had in the U.S., but for markedly different reasons. As a hospital-based specialist in the New Zealand system, I learned that none of my patients had any out-of-pocket expenses. Still, a large number of patients came to the hospital for chronic disease management or complications that could have been prevented with earlier intervention. Universally, these patients said that they couldn't afford the $40 to $60 copays required to see their primary care provider, Or even if they could, an appointment might not be available for four to six weeks. So they came to the hospital, exacerbating the burden on an already overwhelmed system. While I was there, the Palmerston North Hospital Emergency Department managed 50,000 encounters a year in a facility designed for fewer than 20,000. Because healthcare funding streams for primary care and acute care are separate, conflicts exist as hospitals want to move more care to the outpatient setting, but the outpatient care infrastructure is stretched to capacity and can't easily absorb the workload. I also noticed patients presenting with loneliness, anxiety, depression, and failing to cope with the stresses of life, particularly after the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Unfortunately, aside from those with severe mental illness, such as suicide attempts or psychosis, people in need of behavioral health services faced extraordinarily limited access in New Zealand. Often, people cried asking for help that I had no easy way to provide. The care simply wasn't available. In addition to facing primary care and behavioral health challenges, patients frequently experienced long delays in care, if it was even offered at all. A woman presented to the hospital repeatedly over the course of several weeks, with worsening nausea and headaches resulting from a large brain tumor. She had already been started on steroids to decrease the brain swelling causing her symptoms but the regional neurosurgery team didn't have the capacity to operate for several more weeks. Despite her debilitating symptoms, she had to wait. Later, I cared for a fully independent and fit woman in her 80s who had developed difficulty breathing. Her workup showed severe aortic stenosis, making it hard for her heart to pump blood. In the U.S., if she had insurance coverage, she'd get minimally invasive valve repair and go on to live a life where the aortic stenosis wouldn't limit her. However, because of her age and the healthcare system's limited capacity to perform the procedure, the cardiology department declined to offer her the option. She was destined to have progressive symptoms over the next several months. Her prognosis was poor. She seemed to understand, but I felt uneasy. As my experience in the New Zealand healthcare system grew, the distress I thought I'd left behind in the US crept back in. I also saw the symptoms in my overextended and under-resourced colleagues who continued to do what they could to try to deliver optimal care. Whether such distress is categorized as burnout or moral injury, one thing is clear. Physicians, seemingly universally, are struggling. Healthcare systems create conflicts that drive providers' distress. In the U.S., that distress is often due to misaligned incentives between revenue generation and optimal patient care. In New Zealand, there's an imbalance between individual patient need and the resources allocated nationally to deliver care. The result, for uniquely different reasons, is a demoralized and worn-out workforce. Too often, provider distress remains framed as requiring more individual resilience. Implied is that physicians who struggle simply aren't strong enough or efficient enough to avoid becoming emotionally exhausted. Whether because of misalignment of financial incentives, a limited ability to address social determinants of health, a lack of behavioral health services, or under-resourced care, various barriers to optimal patient care affect healthcare providers deeply. Too many providers struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and suicide. Far too many clinicians are looking for a way out, and COVID-19 only deepened existing struggles. Burnout and moral injury among healthcare professionals are themselves crises, but are also a signal of system failure. System leaders and policymakers must emphasize and address system-level factors that drive this distress. The first step is to fully align economic incentives in the U.S. by accelerating the transition to population-based alternative payment models. In a traditional fee-for-service environment, the resources needed to address the social determinants of health, such as social work, counseling, and behavioral health support, aren't typically reimbursed. Providers don't have the resources or time to address many of the underlying issues driving poor health outcomes during patient encounters. In a 2018 survey of nearly 9,000 physicians conducted by the Physicians Foundation, 88% indicated that some, many, or all of their patients have a social situation poverty unemployment etc that poses a serious impediment to their health in contrast when the resources are allocated in primary care to address patient social needs recent studies highlight improvements in job satisfaction and burnout among clinicians unfortunately as of 2020 only 6.7% of healthcare payments in the US were using population based payment models Although Accountable Care Organizations have proliferated, most remain largely fee-for-service or built on a fee-for-service architecture. Not only do population-level payments and the resulting added support for patient social needs offer an opportunity to improve the epidemic of provider moral injury, but most payers believe the U.S. healthcare system is moving in that direction regardless. In the 2021 Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network report, 87% of payers thought that APM adoption would increase, 92% believed it would lead to better care, and 93% expected better care coordination. Yet, to fully address the problem, policymakers also need a better understanding of what the problem actually encompasses. That starts with clearer definitions. Providers recognize when something is wrong, but defining distress, burnout, and moral injury remains a challenge. The concept of moral injury begins to capture the underlying drivers of the symptoms of burnout. However, to date, there are no validated surveys or tools to measure moral injury in physicians. Conversely, although burnout is better studied, a 2018 meta-analysis published in the Journal of the American Medical Association reviewing the prevalence of burnout showed that across 182 studies in 45 countries, there were 142 unique definitions of burnout. This variation can make it difficult to home in on underlying causes. In the interim, there are steps that organizations can take. Mayo Clinic measures physician burnout annually and identifies departments that need early intervention and additional support. Its research shows that for every one-point decrease on a 60-point composite leadership score, there was an associated 3.3% increase in the likelihood of physician burnout. The University of Colorado Department of Family Medicine redesigned its clinics around a team-based model of care and rethought roles, staffing, and workflow. The changes were associated with a reduction in reported symptoms of burnout among clinicians from 56% to 28%. Other organizations continue to work within the existing healthcare landscape to improve provider distress, but more fundamental changes are needed. Understanding provider distress requires looking beyond the number of hours clinicians work to the underlying factors that often make those hours so hard. Only then will it be possible to expand delivery models that achieve the quadruple aim of reducing costs, improving population health, enhancing patient experience, and improving provider satisfaction. Otherwise, clinicians will continue looking for a way out, and that's not good for anyone's health. I left the United States disgruntled and worn out. During my nearly three years in New Zealand, I realized that there are no perfect systems. Healthcare systems the world over must make trade offs, and too often those trade offs interfere with providers' ideals of optimal patient care. In spite of the overwhelming evidence that burnout is a systemic problem, not an individual one, physicians continue to receive messages that reinforce the idea that they have failed. What follows is isolation and shame. Yet the age-old adage of do no harm applies to everyone, including the healers themselves. I returned to the U.S. in the spring of 2022, optimistic and hopeful that the ongoing push toward population-based APMs will help not only patients, but also my fellow colleagues.
0: That was Jason Pryor reading his essay, Halfway Around the World, Echoes of Physician Moral Injury. Thanks for listening to the Health Affairs Narrative Matters podcast. If you like this episode, tell a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.